All right, so we discussed the difference between spiritual creations which are holy, such as angels, versus spiritual creations which are known as klipa and sitrachna. The term sitrachna means other side, um, meaning not holy, because there is a, a strict binary in reality. All things in the world fit into two categories. There are either potatoes or they are not potatoes. Think about it. It's correct, right? <laughs> Those are the only two categories of existence, right? Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, Kabbalistically, um, and consequently also in Hasidus, um, existence defined into that which is holy or Buttle to God. I'm going to not leave. I'm going to leave that word untranslated for right now, and then everything else. So the everything else is the other side. That's a trachma. The word klipa comes from the is the Hebrew word for shell. A shell conceals what is within it. So the idea is that klipa denies the kind of deeper reality of things, the deeper reality of God. So those those although those are not synonyms in a literal sense, they are both names for the same entity. Okay. Um. Now, something we spoke about in the last class, which was implicit, but I did not make explicit, which is important going forward. The klipa is alive in the sense. Um, we spoke about how the angels feel towards God, right? Well, so then the difference would be how does the klipa feel towards God? Um, so. In, our, in, 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 the, in the Gemara, in the Talmud, there are stories. Now, some of these stories are meant to be taken literally, and these are stories that are used to establish um, halacha, legal precedents, because you can't establish legal precedents from make-believe stuff. Um, some of the stories, though, are not meant to be taken literally. Okay. So why are they there? So then why not just say the thing you want to teach? What if that case happened in the future? Well, so then it is meant to be taken literally and it's presented as hypothetical. Oh. Like an example of a story which is not meant to be taken literally is Rabba Barbar Khanna one time saw a giant frog. He tells us. How big was this frog, you ask? <laughs> yeah, it was the size of the village of Har- Hargunya. How big, you ask? the Talmud interjects, was the village of Hargunya. 60 houses. Then there was a serpent that swallowed the snake. Then there was a crow or a raven that swallowed the serpent. And then it went and flew and sat on a tree. See how strong that tree is? And Shmuel Bar, Bar Papa said, you know, had he not been there, he would not have believed it. So why is the story of the Talmud? Very good. Um, 
so one can say, well, it's a metaphor, it represents something, right? Well, then why not just say what it's a metaphor for, what it represents? What's the answer? Because metaphor is stronger than uh, actual, actual things. Sometimes well, clearly not, not because I just said it. I don't think no. anybody got it. <laughs> no, but sometimes it's actual. What? No, make it too easy. You make it too easy. And then well, what would you I will have so much trouble in my class. Or it's a concept that's so, like, high. It's, the concept is higher than an explanation can give. So it's, it's a way of bringing it down to what we well, I want to just change one word, okay? It's a way of bringing it down to a level we can relate to, not necessarily to understand. And the reason we see this is that there's a tradition in Judaism of studying the stories of the Talmud, which um, are not halachic. And some of them, there are obviously have obvious ethical points to them, but many of them don't. Many of like this frog story. And um, there's a tradition of studying them. And our sages say that they, they help one know God. So that story helps you know God. Okay, so what I want to talk about is an idea which is all coming back to the Klippo. There's an idea that some things um, are very hard to explain and very hard to understand. And in fact, many people are not capable of really understanding them. But they're important for people to be able to relate to them. So we can substitute, and, and this is not how analogies are used in Hasidus, by the way. We can substitute ideas for imagery, explanations for stories. Okay? So when you tell a child, right, that Hashem took us out of Egypt with his outstretched arm, right? What do you want the child to take away from that? Hashem saves you from... Hashem, Hashem's power, right? Now you are trying to help the child understand, conceptualize, intellectually, rationally, what it means that Hashem has power. You know, is that what we're trying to do when we talk to a three or four year old? No. No, right? We're trying to evoke within them a sense of Hashem being powerful, right? It's relatable. It doesn't necessarily mean they understand it, right? So now, if imagery or symbolism or story is used, especially within a context where that imagery evokes things in you, right? Then things can become relatable in some level, even though you don't necessarily understand them. That makes sense? Now, it might be that, for instance, if I say snake, in that, in, in that thing, right? There was, a, there was a tree, there was a snake, there was a frog, there were houses. I think of all of the things you could probably figure out, there's something about evil in there, right? How'd you know that? Because there's a snake, right? Snake, evil, right? So that one, right, you have enough familiarity with that, right? But maybe some of the other imagery you aren't familiar enough with, right? So it doesn't have any, right? Now, here's the thing. Maybe if you were heavily acculturated into the, 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 the world of the sages, right? Even if you didn't really understand very much, maybe those things would, would maybe all those things, right? For instance, does anyone know when you hear like about a tree, like... Tree. Yeah, tree. There you go. Tree of life, right? Oh, that's interesting, right? So I don't even know the whole story, but like already, like, there's something, and then there's some evil, and then you come back to the tree of life, and that's apparently not so obvious because Shmuel Bar Papa said, had he not been there? You wouldn't have believed. Right? So there's some kind of radical interaction here between evil and coming back to good and life, right? Okay. Like, I don't really, I don't really understand that, right? And I might not even have consciously think about it, but it, but it touches me in a certain way, right? You see what I'm saying? 
This is, by the way, not again how analogies are used in Chassidus. Because Chassidus is meant, Chabad Chassidus is meant to be an intellectual endeavor. Okay. This was all introduction for me to say something, which I mean you to not... I'm going to speak in a way which is sorry, symbolic. And when I say symbolic, I don't mean make-believe. I mean things that will help this be relatable, but not necessarily do you understand them, Okay. If I say, for instance, something like demons, demonic possession, yeah, that, 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 that carries some meaning to you, right? Okay. Klipas, the sitrachra, are demons. Okay? Yes, they're demons. I don't mean this as a technical metaphor, okay? That's what I'm saying. This is, this is symbolic in nature, but they are demons. Now, see, when I say demons, you don't think an abstraction, Right? You don't think philosoph- you don't think a psychological state. You feel like that's like some kind of a, a living being that wants something, right? Okay. So klipas are like that. I, I don't mean to like it's not a precise okay. In fact, many of the Kabbalistic works and many times the sages are talking about them, they refer to them as demons. demons. <laughs> um, now, what would you say if like demons were, were able to take control of some part of this world? That would be like... Scary. Yeah, okay. So what does it mean that the klipas enliven things? That's scary. Yeah, okay, good. So, okay. So we're now talking about... Okay, so now, so now we're talking about like Hashem is speaking things into existence, right? That's what we're talking about, right? Which itself, as we spoke in the previous classes, involves some sort of concealment because really there's no external to God, right? There's, nothing, there's no space outside of God. But, and, but then he's speaking to, to... He's speaking and the result of his speaking is that beings come into existence and those beings are not angels. They're not devoted to God. What are they? They're demonic. Okay, again, I'm not using that word to conceptualize. I'm getting that word right to get that, oh, to get that sense of how, when, I want to, oh, there's ho- holy spiritual creations and there's unholy, like it's all, it's all very like abstract. You don't really get, right? But if we can put it in some kind of symbolic or metaphoric language, it's much more relatable, even though, again, that's not necessarily a proper conceptualization of what we're talking about. Good? Okay. So, to put in other words, we are now going to discuss how God creates the demons. Now, what's important to realize is that these demons, right, these klip and are they aware that they're being brought into being by God's word? Absolutely. Because they are spiritual creations. They are not the physical world. Right? We spoke about how the physical world is unique in the fact that there is no inherent awareness of God. Okay, so that goes back to what we spoke about before about how people feel about their boss. Right. right. Okay, so how do they feel about God? They, they, they loathe God. But they still need something. But they need him. They wish they did. Who loathes God? The Klippa. They loathe God. They loathe him with a passion. It's hate in a very like deep physical sense. Like like when you say like like somebody like it says for instance that um, that um, Avshalom could not speak to Amnon, his half brother, because of what Amnon did to Avshalom's sister Tamar. So why can he speak to him? So you hate someone so much like you physically can't even get words out. Good. Okay. Now.
therefore, in the text, the klipa are called other gods. Okay, in Hebrew, elokim acherim, other gods. Why are they called other gods? For their nurture and life are not of the so-called countenance, but of the so-called hind part of holiness. Or, or um, backside. Backside exemplifying the act of giving something, something unwilling to an enemy when he throws it over his shoulder, as it were, having turned his face away from him since he hates him. Okay. I'm going to read one more paragraph and then we'll start analyzing the text. So, we'll talk about on high with God, the term countenance or face <laughs> exemplifies the inner quality of the supernal will and true desire, which God delights to dispense life from the realm of holiness to everyone who is near to him. Okay. So in, in Hebrew, we have this word panim. Panim means a face. Um, it's also related to the word for inside. It's also like the, word, the, the fancy word that uses countenance. And then the opposite is Acharaim, or the backside. Okay. In order to understand this idea, okay, um, we need to understand what we mean when we speak about will. Okay, because the idea here is that there's a notion of um, the the There's a notion that there's a, the, the face of the will, the countenance of the will, the panim of the will, and then there's the acharaim, the back part of the will. Okay? Um, now, in order, to do, in order to explain this, I actually want to first start with a different topic, which sometimes gets confused, and I think it's going to be helpful to differentiate to, to this other topic, and then we'll go back to what the text says, okay? In Hasidus, there is a discussion about what is called Pinimiya on the inner will, and chutzayni saratzon, the outer will. Or inner will and external will. Okay, and this sometimes gets confused with what's being talked about here. They're not the same thing. So let's, let, let's explain. Do you, simple, do you enjoy making um, money? Yeah. Yeah. Do I enjoy making money? Making money. No, but, but I like the, the money. No, the process of making money. No. No, unless like keeps me busy. Unless it keeps me busy. Like let's say like Give me an example of what you mean. I'm surprised by this. I rather like like for example, like if I have a day, like I'd rather spend with my family. I didn't ask you if you I didn't ask you in reference to other things. I didn't ask you to prioritize. And there are many things that I like to do and I enjoy, but there are things I like more, and if I had the choice I'd maybe pick the other one. That's what I'm asking. Do you enjoy making money? Do you enjoy making money? Do you enjoy yes, okay. Does anyone not enjoy making money? I don't I mean, think so. If you didn't have to do, if you could just get money, you'd rather just get no, money. No, but it's not a question of comparison. It's just I'm just asking if it's it enjoyable is, to make money. Do you, do you like, Why is it so hard? Do you like working and making nothing? Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm not sure you all understood my question. What did I ask? Yes, I like making money. I asked if you enjoy making money. Yes. I didn't ask if you enjoy having to go to work. You're right, you're right. That's not the same thing. Okay. Okay. Now, if we want to be overly complicated, we can say like this. There is a difference between things that we do, 
so that we can have money and we wish we didn't have to do them. Mm -hmm. And things where we feel like we're making money. To be clear, money, what is money? Money is the stuff that people give us because we're producing things of value, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you like, I don't know, you have a restaurant and you're like making food and people are coming in, the customers are coming in, right? The, the fact that you make food that people want to buy and now you have like revenue at the end of the day, which overrides the amount of your expenses, like that is, that is in itself an enjoyable thing. I mean, they can be tired and exhausted, but that is an enjoyable thing, right? Um, now, the more your work or your job is more disconnected from that, that's a different thing. So if you go into an office and shuffle papers around for eight hours a day, right? For no reason of why these reports need to be written and nobody's going to read them, and then magically money comes into your account every two weeks, that can be very, you know, you know like life-draining and just like kill your soul. But that's not what I asked you, right? There's a process called making money, right? You are doing things producing, you know, in, in kind of some kind of an economic, you're doing things engaging economically and getting money and like, like take kids. Kids love having, you know, lemonade stands or whatever, right? Again, that's an enjoyable activity, right? Okay. But you would not say that you're engaging in all of those things that involve making money, such as, let's use the lemonade stand, of like buying the lemons and mixing the lemonade and setting up your thing and setting up the sign, if at the end of the day, you really do not expect to make a profit, right? Right. All, in other words, the activity of making money is rewarding and fulfilling and enjoyable in all these wonderful words, words because... It leads to having the money, right? If you didn't value having money, you would not enjoy making money, yeah? That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, we can discuss, and here's the thing, we can discuss the relationship between, okay, this is going to be important, we can discuss the relationship between what you truly desire and what you desire instrumentally, okay? Or... Ends and means, if you like this. So, for an, an example of, if you 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 enjoy having money, you value having money, it makes you feel good to have money, right? And you experience you experience the what you're doing as the making of that money, right? So, it feels very good, right? The more disconnected that is, that's good. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have any in-principle objection to it. So let's take something very, very neutral. Like, do you enjoy, um, do you enjoy having to take food out of the refrigerator? I don't think most people enjoy having to take food out of the refrigerator, right? Mm-hmm. But they clearly do it. No one's forcing them to do it. So we have to say on some level that they want to take the food out of the refrigerator, right? Why are they taking food out of the refrigerator? To eat the food, right? So that's almost like there's a kind of like neutrality, you know? Now, I mean, maybe there's some like nice thing that you get to decide whether you take the food out of the refrigerator, right? There's some kind of personal autonomy in that, right? It's like when you have your own house, you don't have to ask your parents anymore or whatever. It's like that might feel... You say that like we can discuss the relationship between these things, right? So, Panemia Sarotsin, the inner will, really is what you ultimately desire. And the chutzainius and the outer will, is what you desire because of the inner will or for the sake of the inner will. Okay? And there's an interesting relationship between those two things. Okay? 
Sometimes they're very distinct. Like, um, I want to call my travel agent to make a ticket, right? To get to, um, uh, get a, to get on a plane so I can be by my friend's wedding, right? And the only place at which like, I actually like, have real genuine positive feelings maybe is the being at the wedding part, right? But it doesn't mean I have like, anything against calling the travel agent. It's like, whatever. I mean, you know, I mean, we all have this thing where we wish we didn't have to do anything at all, but I'm not talking about that. It's not the end of the world to call traveling. It's not the end of the world to get on a plane. Right? It's not the end of the world to travel, right? Of course, I'm doing it to be at the wedding. But the thing I enjoy is the wedding. Now, why I enjoy the wedding? I don't, it's like, I'm not like, you know, addicted to weddings. It's my friend, right? So what I really value is being with my friend. And that's why I want to be at that, that location because my friend's getting married. And so you have the inner will, the outer will. Okay, that makes sense? Okay. So if we were to ask the question, which will does God use to create the world? The inner will or the outer will? You can't say both. Again, there's, an, there's a question of how much is an interplay between, what the interplay is between them, but you pick one. Inner. inner will? Um, you no. say outer. Well, wait, based on... Based on anything you want. I don't really care. Why, which will does God use to create the world? We say God has a will to create the world. God has a desire to create the world. But I don't really want to get hung up with the semantics. Will, desire, like, we're just going to leave that all par for right now. Is it the inner will or the outer will? Uh, why do you say outer? Because it's like the, it's almost like the neutral will. Like, How do you know? Did you, did you like, did you like look at God as he was doing it and kind of take it, take, to get a sense of like where he was holding? Well, my reasoning is we, we never say like, we ask the question, why did God create the world? So there's like, that implies that there's a deeper reason. For that's it. That's all you needed. Mm-hmm. If something is the inner will, it is nonsensical to ask why. That's it. That's simple. Now, there's different notions of why, so this is confusing people. Why, why, why do I care about my children? Because they're children. Right, that's a silly question. In other words, if you knew what a person was and you knew what it means that a person has children, what would follow is... Very good, right? Right. There's no, there, like, there is. In other words, if you go dig, dig deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into yourself as a mother or as a father as to why you care for your children, all you're going to discover is that you really, really, really care. <laughs> it's not like some deeper thing you're trying to get to. That caring for your children is the means by which you get to that thing. Unless you're like really messed up, and we're not going to talk about such people. Yeah. Why do I care about my kids' school? Because you care about your kids. Nope, skip the step. Because you, you care, care about, about their education. education. I care about their education. Why do I care about their education? Why do I care about their education? Because you care about your kids. It's sort of like a mold. You're still skipping a step. Because you want them to be successful. I care about their welfare. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Why do I care about their welfare? Because they're your kids. Because I care about that. Right? Their welfare is significant to me. Like why do, right? And, and here's the simple thing, right? What happens, just to illustrate this, what happens if um, my children could be educated and it doesn't involve the school? What would happen to my care for the school? Mm-hmm. Disappear. What happens if my children would ha- don't need education for their welfare, for whatever? Education wouldn't be. I wouldn't care about education. What happens if my children's welfare does not need to be a concern of mine anymore? Which is tragic, but it does happen. When does that happen? When they grow up. When they die. 
Because the, the interesting thing about dead people, there's not a concern for their welfare anymore. Does that mean the parent stops caring about the child? No, right? See, those are, right? So all of those have some kind of instrumental, extrinsic justification, right? right? As a parent, as long as your child's alive, you're really worried about what's going to happen to them in life, right? But if God forbid, they're, they're, you know, you know, they're not here, I mean, let, let's bracket the fact that the afterlife is not such a simple place to be, but whatever. Let's ignore that for right now. Then there's like, okay, I mean, you still care about them. But like, are they going to do well in life? It's like a meaningless question, right? So it doesn't turn into like caring about welfare, which means you don't care about their education, which means you don't care about the school. That makes sense? Okay. So the, now there's a different question you could ask, which is why did God create people such that they care about their children? That's a very different kind of question, but that has nothing to do with why I as a living being care about my children. Right? Don't conflate those two questions. Make sense? Okay. So, um, what are some other things that we would say are the inner will of people? Just to get a sense of this. Things that like, again, think of the inner will as the stuff that you ask, but why is that important to you? Why is that important to you? You can't really say anything meaningful. Just you can survive. just go deeper important more. Actually, survive. survive is not really one of those things as a person. As an animal, maybe, but as a person, no. Wait, survive. Live, yes, survive, no. Because what happens if you feel like your survival is yeah. lacks life? You don't want to live. That's right. right. We, we see survival as human beings as vehicles for something more significant. That's why we talk about the purpose of life, right? Mm-hmm. So meaning. Right. So meaning, maybe, yeah. Uh, meaning. The desire to be with people. Yeah, that's good, right? We're social. Right? We have, right? Togetherness, bonding. Why is bonding important? Well, because without bonding, I'm miserable. Ah, so it's really important to you, but why is it important to you? Oh, because without it, I'm miserable. Yeah, but why are you miserable? Because it's really important to you. Right? You're not explaining why it's important. You're just acknowledging how bad it is when you don't have it. That's not an explanation of why, it's, why you want it, right? Well, maybe. That's actually not so simple. Why? Because it's not so simple. <laughs> I feel like if you ask anybody all the questions, eventually they're going to be like, it's just because. No, no, but like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. There's a lot of things that, that you have to realize that they're not language games, but we have no other way of getting to them without language. Okay? So I'll give you an example. A lot of times people say something, oh, people just want stuff because it feels good. And like, if you actually like sit and reflect upon an experience of life and really deeply be honest with yourself, you'll actually realize that that's not true. In fact, you realize that, that that's actually very, very shallow and, 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 and it doesn't... Many things make us feel good. But it actually turns out that the, the, the kind of... If you pay attention to yourself deeply, you start to realize is they make you feel good because they're important. I, it feels good when I have friends. And it feels miserable when I don't have any. Because friendship and connection is very important to me. But then I ask, well, why is that important to me? Like, why can't I just substitute the, that with, like, the pleasure I get from ice cream? Because I get pleasure from ice cream, too. And I start to realize that, like, the pleasure is much more of indicative of something than the justification for something. In fact, people who do things for pleasure become, uh, this is, you know, this is, this is, that's very lowly, it's very base, it's very animalistic, and, and feels very empty as human beings. Okay? Um, now, in terms of the thing, if you had said... Um, to, to connect to God, I wouldn't have said that's so controversial because there is a part of us 
um, certainly as Jews, our godly soul, which, which it is important to be close to God. But doing God's will is actually it's not so simple. That's a little bit more complicated. Is that really, is that extrinsic to the soul? For instance, I might say, I want to do God's will so that I can be close to him, in which case, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's not so simple that there really is within us. I'm not saying it's wrong. There's a, there's a bit of a complication, Tanya, about that point. How much is it like intrinsically meaningful to us to do God's will? And how much of that is instrumental so that we could be close to him? Yeah. Isn't both things just about survival, even like the whole like social aspect of having friends? Like if we don't have friends, uh, social exclusion means that we're lonely and social exclusion usually leads to death and abandonment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So isn't it all all thing about a strive to, to survive? If you're a Darwinist. <laughs> in other words if you're a Darwinist then you, then you presuppose that every trait of a species ultimately feeds back into the survival of the organism long enough to reproduce right? yes okay if you're not a Darwinist right then you say okay well what is the essence of a human being and the essence of a human being is something that transcends the body I don't mean it's disembodied I mean it transcends the body so for instance um a classic idea we find in, 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 in most Jewish sources is that, and this goes actually all the way back to the, the Talmudic literature, is that human beings are like angels in some respects and like animals in some respects. Um, but not that, we're like, not that we're like two different things just happen to be stuck together. So what that, what that means is that some of the things that we have merely are there, merely, for the animalistic part so that the animalistic part can survive long enough for whatever is important for the non-animalistic part. Okay, so like I can't, for instance, contemplate God's greatness while I'm dead, for argument's sake. So I have to eat. So the eating is really instrumental and animalistic, okay? Um, then there are things which are clearly just entirely not animalistic. So for instance, um, human beings have a... a, 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 a um, knowing, knowing truth is something that is just important to people. If you think about it, like, why is it important to know the truth? And you start like abstracting, like, well, what if you, like, you think, oh, if I don't know the truth, then I'll end up like suffering or hurting. And you say, well, what if we work around all those problems? You really think about that deeply. You start to realize there's a part of you that like, no, no, no. It's important to me to know the truth. It's important oh, to me to live in a course of what? No, truth in the most absolute sense. About our existence, or I, I'm being intentionally vague because I'm talking about I'm talking about the need that exists in the person, what's important to the person. Now, for that, a person has to be very not animalistic to get in touch with that part of themselves. That's something that the people are not. But then there are things which actually have elements of both. So, is it true that when we are on our own, we are more likely to die? Mm -hmm. Yes. Is it also true that when we are on our own, our minds do not develop an awareness of things that are deep and profound and true? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So our being social creatures is both a feature of the animal body and of the spiritual mind. In other words, that's why um, in Judaism, we don't understand that the more spiritual or refined or deep or intellectual person becomes, they somehow lose the need for society on like a fundamental, non-instrumental level. So much so that the Rambam asks a question. This is like my favorite Rambam quotes. Um, it's also not the most politically correct thing to say. But the Rambam, who's of the view that God created man for the purpose of knowing God, and most people are stupid, 
creates the question of why did God create so many stupid people if they're not really going to achieve the purpose that man was intended for. <laughs> so he gives two answers. He says, well, one, you can't have a functional society unless there are people that go out and do stuff like farming and make sandals and like, you know, and so like, you know, and if, and if the people who are supposed to know God are, you know, doing all that stuff, they're not going to have the time to like, you know, develop their minds and know the truth, right? So that's saying that God intentionally created dumb? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, didn't distribute, he didn't distribute the intellectual capacities equally for a reason. He's, after all, wise and benevolent and knows what he's doing. But then the other thing he says also, he says, the other thing he says also is that the wise people would just be lonely. Because, the, again, this goes back to the, 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 that some characteristics of people are truly just animalistic. Okay? Some characteristics of people are truly not animalistic at all. And some have both an animalistic side and a non-animalistic side. Now, the, the mistake that the Darwinists make is, well, they look at all the stuff that's animalistic or all the stuff that's animalistic side. They say, okay, all that's real. And then the stuff that's like non-animalistic or the non-animalistic side of the certain things, they just call that epiphenomenal. just stuff that happens to occur but has no like real use. So like they reduce human intelligence and human intellect down to the ability to plan your hunts. That's basically all it is. It's a sophisticated version of hunting, planning your hunt. And like, good, if you're a Darwinist, then fine. I mean, I'm not going to argue with you. But it's certainly not Judaism. Um, so like, there's these things that are fundamentally important. And we can like talk about them. You know, are they, how many things are there? And it's an interesting thing. But then there's all these other things that are important and we have a drive for, we have a will for, we care about, we want, we desire because of their instrumental. Right? And again, the relationship between those things, right, what's called the Chatzonis Ratzon and the Panimis Ratzon, that's an interesting question, right? Also, how deep do we want to go, right? Do we just want to go down and say, well, really, many of these things that we think of as fundamental drives or things we fundamentally care about are really just versions of the same thing? Those are interesting questions. That is not what it's talking about here. When he says there's the back part and then there's the, 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 the face, okay, he gives an example if you give something to your enemy. Now, for this we have to understand something about hatred. Okay? Um, hatred is an emotion. In fact, earlier the Alter Rebbe has established that how can you tell if you are a tzaddik and how do you measure tzaddikim? What is the litmus test that we would use? By how much they hate ungodliness, how much they hate klipa. Okay. So let, let's just, now. What does that mean? How well? How much do you hate Klipa? Anybody? How much do you hate Klipa? A lot. Not at all, actually. Not really. You don't. <laughs> let me explain to you do what you I'm. Use it all the time? No, no, no. We have. We're, we're, let's move past just behavior for a moment. Okay. Let me give you an example of hatred. Okay. You are walking down the street, okay? Minding your own business. Yeah. No one is doing anything to stop you going from where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Okay? And as you're walking down the street, at the corner of your eye, you see a bunch of people gathered. Okay? And they are chanting very, very nasty, vicious, anti-Semitic slogans with great glee. How do you feel? Scared. What? Scared. Well, Scared, angry, okay. you're feeling something, right? Okay, right, you're having a reaction to them, okay. Now, um, let us imagine now that there's sufficient 
distance so that there's not concern that they're going to hurt you or whatever else. Okay, so let's remove... You're feeling things. You're feeling things, right? Right? Do you wish these people... Um, and I'm not going to let you give sophisticated answers. You have to say either yes or no. The people, their ideas, their behavior is like a package deal, right? Because we're talking just raw emotion. Do you rather they existed or not existed? Not existed. Okay, right? And there's like an, an urge in you to like, on like a fundamental level, like to kind of wish them out of existence, which obviously you can't do very much about. And you realize that in real life, if you acted on that, you probably get yourself into jail and you're not going to do that, right? But yeah, okay, right? Okay, and then there's a secondary feeling of repulsion that you feel like if you could get to where you need to go some other way, you'd probably prefer to do so, right? Okay. So you want them out of existence and you as far away from them as possible, which are not the same feelings, but I'm focusing on that's hatred. Okay, yeah, that's hatred. I feel. Yeah. Now, you could feel that more very intensely, right? Like really, really intensely. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you felt that way towards somebody, but you needed to interact with them, how would that interaction look? Like you really felt that way. Pretty bad. No, I want to describe it. How would that look? Like No, no, I'm not talking about the behaviors. I'm not talking about the, I'm not talking about the behaviors. Because like you, whatever needs to get done gets done. But you really feel that way about them. It's intolerable. In this it's intolerable, right? It's intolerable. Like you're gonna go and like, but you have to interact. So what do you do? Right? So you know, in as much as you could accomplish what you need to accomplish without looking at them in the eye or not looking in the eye, to actually look away from them completely, to look away from them completely, right? To mentally disassociate from what you're doing, you'll try to do that, right? Because you loathe them, you despise them, you wish they did not exist, right? Is that the same thing as just things you care about but instrumentally? That's not the same thing, right? So there's all this stuff that like, I like, I like more, I like less. Then there's stuff that's like truly deeply meaningful to me. And then there are these things that I have almost the, not almost, I have the opposite feeling towards, right? right? That's called the acharayim of the ratzen or the backside of the will. The backside of the will means I hate it. I despise it. I can't stand it. I wish it didn't exist. I'm repulsed by it. I would rather be anywhere than where it is. Okay, now, go back to my analogy. You're walking down the street and there's a construction project and now you can't get to where you want to go. Are you annoyed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you're annoyed. Why are you annoyed? Because there's something in the way. That's right. So that's how you feel about Klippa. To the degree that you dislike Klippa, it's, it gets in the way of the stuff that you want. But you don't, but you don't have any issue with it per se. So like when Klippa gets you from getting as spiritually connected to God as you ever desire to be, like then it's annoying, right? It's like we're all pro-construction until it blocks our, our traffic on the way home, right? Well, I mean, you want, you want roads. Like you don't have, so I don't have a prob- we don't have a problem with the fact that things are Klippa. We just have a problem with the fact that it blocks us. A tzaddik actually hates Klippa. A tzaddik's walking down the street minding his own business and he's at a quarter of ice and Klippa. And the tzaddik is filled with a venomous rage to wish it out of existence if he could. It's not doing anything to him. Doesn't matter. It's abhorrent. It's evil. Is that how you feel about ungodliness? I don't think any of us feel that way about ungodliness, right? Right? It's like if our Sahara would be a little bit more religious, we'd be okay with that, right? It's like, fine. Well, just don't get, I, I want some religion. I want some closeness to Hashem. I want to feel good about my being Jewish. Like, and if you could just cooperate with that, like, it's fine, like, right? So, Now, do you know why a tzaddik hates klipa? 
Because a tzaddik is vicariously experiencing things from God's perspective. That's what makes him a tzaddik, as established earlier. That the love that a tzaddik feels for God is a love that can only happen through intimate contact with Hashem. So therefore his hatred is a genuine hatred. It's not contrived. This is all stemming from the fact that God hates Klippa. So if God hates Klippa, again, think about what it's like for you when you would feel hatred, right? But now here's the thing. Does God have a reason for Klippa to exist? No. Yes. Why? That's, That's a good question. But if he didn't have a reason for it to exist, it you know what wouldn't happen? Wouldn't. He wouldn't create it. So what do you do if you create something you despise? Do you engage with your creation or you don't engage with the creation? If you don't engage, it doesn't exist. But if you, but it, right? But if you, but if you, but if you, but you can't engage because you despise it. So. You said it's not to engage with it. What? No, 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 no. You just do it as much as you That's not right. So that's like God is sort of turns his back and, you know, just. Then it wouldn't exist. So. But he turns his back. That's how... So remember, there's the God's will. Yeah. And then there's God's speech. Does God's word carry some divine energy to the Klippa to create them and enliven them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do they realize that God is talking to them and giving them existence? Yeah. Yeah. They do, because they're Klippa, right? They're spiritual beings, right? The demons know God is speaking them into existence. And they also know that as much as they hate God... God hates them infinitely more because he's God and he can do that. <laughs> there is tremendous enmity between God and the Klippa. But that itself is what creates it too, right? Well, God is speaking out his hatred for a reason. You could like, if you feel hatred, you could keep it to yourself, right? You don't have to go and tell the person that you hate that you hate yeah. them. No, it's just strange. <laughs> the way that he creates them is the way that they interact with each other. That's right. Okay, so that's called Acharayim, okay? But they still carry a greater sense of God. Oh, like, they're like, like, who's God? God is the being that absolutely hates me and wish he didn't have to create me, but for some reason he does. And as long as I am here, I'm going to use everything I can to my advantage. And I'm going to try and undermine him every way I can and carve out my little kingdom wherever I can do so because I can't hate him as much as he hates me because I'm finite, but I hate him pretty much. And, and, and I would feel good if you just go away. But not, not too far away. In fact, this is anticipating familiar things. If I could somehow get more of God's divine power and energy without having to cooperate with God, that would be really good. Who has reservoirs of divine energy that's receptive to me? Oh, Jews. Yeah, okay. So that's going to come later. But yeah, that, that's where that's going. Yeah. What? Yeah. Anyway. Your Yetzirah, by the way, is that. Your Yetzirah is a little klipa that, that you have, that you have, um, there's a term. I see you in just one second. There's a term. What's the word I'm looking for? An internalized voice. Right. You know what internalized voice is? Yeah. It's like, it's not really your voice, yeah. Yeah. but you think it's your voice and it's in your head. So yeah. the Yetzirah is the Klippa, is the Klippa talking to you, but it's your internalized, it's your internalized it. Oh, really? Yeah. Not the Yetzirah, it's the Yetzirah. God doing God's will. 
Well, sure, because God created for a reason. Well, like, it's still God hates it. If oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we, again, we didn't talk about why God created it. But just because something is doing something that you find value doesn't mean you like it. Okay? Um, I will give you one second. I, I want to actually illustrate this with um, a, a, a little bit of a story, and then you can ask the question, okay? There was a television show that I used to watch when I was playing uh, hooky when I was much, much younger called Hogan's Heroes. Hogan's Heroes was a sitcom from, I believe, the 1960s. The basic premise was that there was a bunch of POWs, prisoners of war from the Allied countries. So you had some Americans, a British, a French guy, whatever. And they were all at this prison camp called Stalag 13 or whatever called. And... Um, but the thing is, they were there intentionally. They were actually running like an underground spy network behind the Nazis' back. So they weren't like trying to escape. And so the commander was, was really proud because he had never a perfect record of no escapes. Um, and he was a complete fool. Now, so the colonel who's run the whole camp, this Nazi's name is Colonel Klink. Colonel Klink was played by an actor who I don't remember his name, who was Jewish. He was a Nazi playing... He was a Jew was a playing Jew. a Nazi. And this is the 1960s, right? This is not... And so... Um, his story goes is that he took the job on condition that in every single episode, Clink is made to look like a fool. And if in any episode he ever comes out, like his scheme or whatever works, and he comes out, you know, winning or whatever, then he's quitting right then. So he's willing to play a Nazi as long as what? He looks stupid. He'd make Nazi look stupid. But you can't make the Nazi end boy. It's really, like, really stupid. But like, like so stupid, he doesn't realize how stupid he is. Like he's convincing himself he's like the greatest person of all time. Anyway, it's a, it's a certain like, like, so, you know, if sometimes when you really hate your enemies, you want to embarrass them, humiliate them, destroy them, defeat them. You know, you can't do those things if they don't exist. So God, if he wants to have any of that stuff going on, what is he going to have to do? Yeah, okay. One one way of thinking about it, but that doesn't mean he likes them. Yeah. Uh, before the age of the fruit of knowledge, hmm? how did Cleopas exist in the world, and what's different from then versus now? Um, it's complicated. There's a lot of a lot of um, different things. I'll start with number one. So, if you imagine all of reality being like a, a giant barrel of wine. Now wine, for those of you who don't know, has sediments to it that settle to the bottom. Um, if you buy cheap wine and drink it very quickly, you won't notice this, but if you buy good wine and you leave the bottle sit there for a while and then you open it up afterwards, you'll see at the bottom there's all this like black stuff. Which you, by the way, can use to make like wine from afterwards. Disgusting halacha, how much sediments you need for... To, no, because if you like, I mean, if you're poor and you want to like, you know, make some more wine with the sediments, like, and you mix it, like, how much of it is actually is like this kind of like diluted wine stuff? You can still make a guff and make kiddush on it. So, anyway, so when God created the world, it was all settled. So you had this pure wine at the top, and you have all the sediments caked down at the bottom, right? Okay. And um, so, I, if you're familiar with the idea that there's these spiritual worlds, so there's the first created world is Bria. The next one is Yitzira. The next one is Asiya. Then, then there's the physical world. 
And then there was a kind of spiritual level below the physical world, and that was the realm of the klipa. I'm oversimplifying, but let's just think of it that way. And then when they ate from the tree of knowledge, um, it's like someone took the barrel and gave it a nice good stir. And so what happened to all the sediment? It floats up. But the thing is, it's still more concentrated closer to the bottom, and as you go higher up. So in in, in Bria, there's like very little klipa there. And in Yitzira, it's like about half klipa. And in Asiya, it's mostly klipa, and this physical world is just like full of klipa. But before that, this physical world was like, not, it was, it was, it had, it was, what's the word? Um, it had a predisposition to klipa because it's a place that's inherently devoid of godliness. But klipa, like I said, is like this, this living demonic creature creation thing of God, right? And so like, it didn't actually exist in the physical world yet. Um, and so it needed to find a messenger to convey its message to human beings. And what was the messenger? That's right, the snake. So was it like destined for them to? That's beyond the topic of this class. You ask me questions and answers. But so anyway, Klepa. That's that's so so how does God feel about Klepa? He really does. Yeah, okay. Good? Okay. So now, on the other hand, how does God feel? Let's go back to so let's go, so let's go read it. Therefore, the Klippas are called other gods. So this is a play in words. Elokim Acherim. Why? Because the word Acherim, other, is related to the word Acher, which means backside, right? So they come from God's back. Okay? Therefore, their nurture and life force are not the so-called countenance, but of the so-called hinder part of holiness, hinder exemplifying the act of being something unwillingly to an enemy. Unwilling here doesn't mean you're forced by because someone is more powerful than you. It's because you can't get what you want some other way. You can't destroy your enemies unless they exist. When he throws it over to him over his shoulders, it were having turned his face away from him since he hates him. Okay. So on high, the term countenance exemplifies the inner quality of supernal and true desire in which God delights to dispense life from the realm of holiness to everyone who is near to him. So now, what does God, in, what does God not turn his face away from? Those who are holy, those who are near to him. Okay? So, um, what does that mean, those who are near to him? So there's a term in Hasidus called bittel. Yes, I've, I've spoken about this, mentioned it, and I said now I'm gonna, I said earlier I'm not going to talk about it, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit now. There are many different ways of talking about bittel. Um, what I'm going to do, because I want to kind of put this in more of a relatable terms, I'm going to use a totally different idea that's found in Chassidus and then use that to explain Bittl because I think they'll be much more relatable to what's happening here than means to give like an abstract technical definition, okay? In the spheros, there's a sphere called Yisod, okay? Um, Yisod is connected to the human quality, the human psychological quality of bonding. Bonding. Okay, so things like Attachment, loyalty, identification with are all aspects of Yusot. In Hebrew, the term for this is Hiskashus. Okay? From the word Kesher, meaning a knot. Good? Now, what is interesting is that in Kabbalah, 
there is a distinction made between the yisod of the male and the yisod of the female. That's the term in Kanalji and Kabbalah. Or the yisod of the mashpia, the giver, or the yisod of the makabal, the recipient. What is the difference between them? What is the difference between the way the giver is bonded with the recipient as opposed to how the recipient is bonded with the giver? The giver doesn't need the recipient. Say whatever you want. Yeah. The giver doesn't need the recipient. Yeah. But the recipient needs needs the the giver. Okay, just remember whatever you say translates into all sorts of give yourself relationships, which come out also as gender dynamics. So, like, I don't know if you're comfortable saying men don't need women. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but if you're comfortable saying it, that's fine. Oh, yeah, I remember you called Okay, so here's the interesting thing um, there isn't really a substantive difference between the yisod, between the male and female, or giver, recipient, mashpima, kaba, when you're talking about klipa. And I'm going to use Klippa, and I'm going, to, I'm going to put this all within human dynamics. So forget God for a moment. And don't really forget God, because you're not allowed to forget God, but for the purpose of this discussion. Okay. Um, there are a lot of things that we feel very attached to. A lot of people we feel very attached to. Why do we feel very attached to them? Hold the porn Why? So let's cut out right now your parents and your siblings and your children. They don't count. Their blood relations, they're not relevant for this discussion. Other people, other things. Things that you have no inherent bond with. Such as your spouse. Such as your close friends. Such as um, institutions, whatever. I don't care. Like anything that's not, again, not blood you relations. To, to attribute that's right. You've made a choice, right? You've, you have a, you have as, as, as a, as a being with your own agency on some level value this person and so much so that you feel a deep attachment to this person, this institution, right? That, that you identify with them, you feel connected to them, you would feel if something's missing if they went away from you, right? Okay, why? Why do you value them so much? Why is it so important to you? It's representative of you. Yeah. Okay. Ah, so it's a so it's kind of a it's a it's a symbolic extension of your own ego. That's what you're saying, right? No, but it doesn't. Have like to I'm like this. Like, like like here's the thing. Like like I'm an Orthodox Jew. So let's drop the Orthodox for a moment. I'm a Jew. So you know, if Jews win the Nobel Prize, like I feel pretty good. Like I didn't win the Nobel Prize, right? So why am I feeling so no, good? There is an intrinsic importance in those things but because why they're not intrinsically important you right. value your value why because <laughs> you get something out of it what's wrong with saying you get something out of it why so that's so hard because it's not only about it's usually about that let's be very honest yeah. I get you because someone else wins a prize sure I do sure I do I mean first off First off, you know, it's like the thing, right? The guy's reading the Nazi newspapers saying, why are you reading the Nazi newspapers? Because you read the Jewish newspapers, we're doing miserable. When you read the Nazi newspapers, it's like, you know, the Jews were rich and were powerful. It feels pretty good, right? Like, I don't know, like, we all like ego boosts. Okay? I mean, some people, you know, they, they make you feel important. Some people, um, they entertain you. Some people, you get financial things from them. 
I mean, let's be very honest. You know, the reason why, you know, a lot of women were very attached to their husbands is for purely socioeconomic reasons. Right? It's not a bad thing. It's just true. Um, you know, a lot of men were attached to their wives because they were able to have procreation and have more children and all that kind of... I mean, it's just, that, that's true. The people get stuff out of things and that's why we... And when we start to identify our needs with the things and people that provide our needs very strongly, we start to feel strong identifications with them. That's the way it works. Like, why is that so hard to admit? Doesn't paint you in a positive light? Okay, doesn't paint you in a positive light. It's still true. Yeah? Here's an interesting question. If God forbid you got, you God forbid your husband um, became um, um, deformed physically, so that he was just hideous to look at. Would you want a divorce? No. Probably not, right? I would admit, probably not. Would you marry such a person? I'm asking you, like, you want a shidduch date and you're like, <laughs> would you say, well, you know, <laughs> why not? Be honest. You probably would say, um, no, right? I'm not that ugly that I need to marry that kind of person, right? You wouldn't say that. So what's interesting is you're forming this connection on the basis of what you get out of it, right? Now, maybe at some point, like, the notion of breaking this down is so unthinkable that you'll tolerate this deformed face, but, like, <laughs> right? Yes? Okay. So, a lot of our attachments and our bonds, again, I'm not talking about the ones that are inherent, are just because we, you know, maybe more rationally, maybe less rationally, think we're getting something out of it, and we become so deeply invested that we cannot imagine life without this thing because it gives us something that we feel we can't do without, whether it's a person or institution or whatever it is, Right? Make sense? Okay. Does that really matter? Is, like, is, is there any fundamental difference between, between the way a husband feels towards the wife or the wife feels towards the husband if that's what's going on? That's like basically the same thing, right? There's nothing fundamentally different about that. Okay, if you want teachers and students, right? Um, if teaching makes you feel really good about life yourself, right? Really important, really powerful and gives you meaning, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Do you go around looking for students? Yeah. yeah, and who do you select as your students? Ones that like, give you that. That's right, that's right, see? Okay. Now, I mean, once they're your students and you're very committed to them, might be you'll hang around with them even when it turns out that they're not so great students. But, you know, or maybe you get a big ego boost out of being the one who deals with the problematic students, right? So you need to go look for the problematic students. Where you get my point? Okay, and like maybe the student realizes that they're dumb and ignorant and, you know, you know are going to fail at life unless someone figure, teaches them how to deal with things and so they look for a teacher, right? But again, what are you doing? It's your in the person. Okay. So that's how you sewed works. When it's not when when and that's like, like the psychological human analogy for what it's like for you sewed in Klippa. In Kedusha and holiness it doesn't work like that. And the the basic thing is like this. In, in Kedusha, the Mashpia, the giver, sets themselves aside for the recipient. In other words, what the recipient needs is what's important, not what I need. Now, 
that choice is made so fully and so absolutely that when they're providing the recipient with the need, how does it make them feel? It makes them feel very good. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the order is like this. There's a person, let's say a teacher, someone who's very wise and knowledgeable. And then they realize there's somebody who is very ignorant and very dumb and they are lacking wisdom and they need wisdom. And so what does this wise person do? This wise person makes a choice to make it their goal in life rather than continue their own quest for greater truth and wisdom to help to whatever degree possible this person because they need it. And they devote themselves absolutely. Now that they devote themselves absolutely, their sense of joy and fulfillment is all wrapped around that success of that person, right? How much they're successful in, and it's not in, in, in helping them. And again, it's not about that I did it. Right? It's, it's, it's that this person was, was, was helped. This person has what they need. Now, bec- as what they're helping them with is a deeper and deeper thing, more personal thing, it becomes something that you can't really get from someone else. Right? That's why I use wisdom rather than information because information you get from anybody. But wisdom is very personal. Okay, now let's reverse this. What happens when you realize that someone's life it's just more real than yours. It's more fundamental than yours. It's more true than yours. And you, you recognize that, that it's kind of silly and shallow for you to keep going on in your life without that. So then what, do you, what, what happens? What do you feel a need for? Closeness with this person. Closeness with this person. Okay. So what happens when the sage recognizes that this person is in deep need of wisdom? And what happens when the person who is also recognizing their deep need of wisdom, they become very devoted to each other. But it's a different kind of devotion, right? It's now not the same thing. It's not, oh, I'm very, very attached to you because I'm getting something that I need from you. Even that person who's in need of wisdom, and this is the thing, wisdom is not the thing that you take away It's not like information. It's not like money. It's about being part of that person's life, that person's, um, this word takes on slightly different meaning nowadays, but that person's truth, that person's sense of truth. Okay? Um, So that would be like the dynamic between a Rebbe and a Chassid. The dynamic between, um, between a halachic master and his disciple. Okay? Um, and, and, and therefore what that means is there's never a sense of anybody using anybody else. There's never a sense of getting things from anybody else. What happens is that they become more and more, right? Is that they become more invested in each other. And again, it's different. One is becoming more, one's devotion takes the form of being very receptive. And the other one is, be, devotion takes the form of being very, what? Not, inve- not receptive. Not what's the opposite of receptive. Very giving, very very forthcoming, right? And those are two kind of inversions of inverted um, senses of vulnerability, right? You're so much connected as the as the wise person. You don't hold back your wisdom. You just figure out how to give even the depths of the most intimate insights that you have in life to this other person. And the other person 
tries to make themselves as open and as receptive to that as possible and, and without corrupting it, without damaging it, without twisting it, without distorting it, and to be genuine to it, right? And what happens with these kinds of things is that they end up fusing into a oneness rather than when you really show strong, strong bonds and identification with others because you get something from them, there's always this sense that there's them and there's you. And the only reason they're in your life is because what you get from them. See how that's very different? How, does the klipa, how, does, how do the holy creations feel about Hashem? Feel about godliness? Just using it for no, the whole, not the klipa, the holy creations. Right? They, 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 they feel like, they feel like, like without God, nothing is worth anything, right? And all they want is more and more God. How does God feel about speaking to them? How does he feel about that? He delights in it. Okay, so, you know, God is having this very deep, you know, wonderful, intimate conversation with the side of holiness. And God is absolutely loathes and can't stand when he has to talk to the klipa. And each creation feels likewise. And by the way, I want you, if you, want you to think about this. I don't want you to think about it like cause and effect. I want you to think about a conversation. If you are nasty to someone in a conversation, what does that mean about the conversation? If you're nasty, you're, you're talking to them nasty. You're, you're, you're being just rude and nasty, disrespectful person in the conversation. What does that mean? About the conversation. What's, what does it mean about the conversation? It's like, it's a very negative conversation, right? Now, here's the thing. Does it really matter who started it? No. No, right? It, 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 there's this kind of, you know, this, 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 this feedback, right? right? If you roll your eyes, then I make a snide comment, so then you make an insult, right? And then it's just like, it does, and like, like it's, it really still is like, well, whose fault is it, right? So, I mean, you rolled your eyes first. But you say, yeah, but the only reason I rolled your eyes is because, is because you brought up a topic that I know that, that, that you know that I, 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 don't, I don't like talking about. So you were just disrespectful to bring up the topic. And I was like, well, the only reason you don't like talking about it. So like, we can just keep going on and on. We can like, it, it doesn't begin anywhere. So Cleopas was like, well, you hate me in God's will because you don't respect me. And he was like, because you, because you want to destroy me. It was like, because you deny my oneness. And like, it doesn't like, like looking for where this begins is beside the point. And then the same thing when a conversation is going well, right? Do we think like, who takes credit for the good conversation? <laughs> That's like a silly thing, right? It's a dynamic between the two, right? So this is the difference between the punim, the face, the countenance of God, and the haraim, the back. He's talking to both. He's having a conversation with both, but very, very different conversations. And both parties are, shall we say, willing participants in that dynamic. God speaks with with, with, um, with, with great enjoyment to the side of holiness and the side of holiness delights greatly in having this conversation with God, right? And coming together and achieving as much closeness as possible, right? God wants to give them as much as they can handle and they want to be as close to God as they can and those are mutually reinforcing. And then the cleave is the opposite. God despises them and they despise him and each one blames the other and, you know, just the bare minimum to, for what God needs from them is, 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 is coming from God to them. And the bare minimum of what they need from God without it costing them too much on their end is what they're willing to hear from God. And so, um, that, so God's relationship is not with all of creations equally, right? Make sense? Okay. 
All right, we will stop here, and tomorrow we'll continue with the Batasitrachal tree. We already spoke a little bit about that idea, um, and then we'll keep going.